Hello and welcome to another edition of the Purple Theory Podcast. I am your host, Parker Fleming, and I have with me, as always, our co-host, Grant McGalliard. Grant, how are you this evening? I'm doing great, Parker. I am 75% of the way through a move and uh, got a five and a half hour drive tomorrow, so things are looking peachy. 75% of the way of the move, does that mean your drive was like a 20-hour drive and you've done 15 hours of it? No, it means that I packed 75% of the stuff and uh, I have an entire drive tomorrow hoping I can fit everything in my truck. So, oh, it's good. very, 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 very fun. Well, uh, yeah. mentioning hope is a good thing. We, uh, we uh, are on the eve of college football and we're all hopeful that uh, people stay safe and the college football season actually happens as scheduled. And to talk about that a little bit, we have a very special guest tonight. Uh, Bill Conley, the, uh, who some have called the godfather of college football analytics, is uh, on our podcast tonight. Bill, thanks for joining us. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me. It was one of those things where nobody else was doing it. Therefore, I just got to jump in and it was, uh, you know, you're, when you're first, it doesn't matter if you're good, I don't think. Yeah, let's, um, so yeah, let's, let's ride with that for a second. Yeah, Bill, how did you start actually like doing this uh, and doing, you know, football numbers at all? Um, I started a Missouri blog. I, I've lived in Columbia or near Columbia for the last, uh, for most of the last like 23 years now. And um, Started a Mizzou blog in the off season of two thousand before two thousand seven. Uh, didn't really know what I was t- uh, what there was to talk about in the off season. Uh, knew I really enjoyed baseball stats. Uh, hated baseball, but loved baseball stats. And I thought, well, okay, let maybe maybe there's something to the to the football stats thing. Googled you know college football advanced stats, and nothing came up. Like it was just you know there's some football outsiders. So Brian Fromo had just started. Uh, his drive stats, but that wasn't, I was envisioning baseball kind of play by play and there, there was just nothing. So I started, you know, entering stuff into a spreadsheet and, um, and, and, and it just went from there. I started writing like about a year and a half later, I started writing for FO, um, had my Mizzou blog for a long time, eventually got picked up by SB Nation full time and off we went. Awesome. Cool. And off you went. And, and then, and then the S and P plus, I guess just now SP came out of that SP plus, uh, Bill, I'm an idiot. So can you explain to me in layman's terms, as you've done a thousand times, what your system is and how it works and, and how you grade teams? Um, it is, I just got a hair in my mouth. Sorry. It is, um, it is an opponent adjusted tempo adjusted measure of, of the, of the predictable, the predictive aspects of, of football, basically just a way of looking at efficiency that, uh, tries to break things down further than yards, uh, yards or yards per play or anything like that. And, oh, I mean, I tinker with it pretty incessantly, pretty like an embarrassing amount. And so it p- takes on other factors over time. But it basically is a, 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 an attempt at looking at the game based on the, the things you can actually control, the predictive aspects of the sport. Uh, try to, you know, get rid of all the funky bounces or as many of the funky bounces as possible and look what you can actually control. Cool. Yeah. And that, and that context has been, uh, in, in, invaluable. Just like, how do we, I, I like to think a lot about like how we think about how we think about college football and SB plus is definitely a vehicle for, Hey, it, it's like, I, you, you still see people talking about total yards and yards per game and even yards per play. And just a like fact of reality that three yards on first and 10 is bad. Three yards on third and three is great. And we need to figure out how to, uh, how to put those together. Um, yeah. So Bill, I think I'm mostly interested in what your thoughts on the shortened season are. So obviously Pac-12 and Big Ten are, are not playing. Um, there have been some accommodations on 
how the other Power Five conferences are going to play and how they're going to schedule, and it's conference only. And one of the big things SP Plus does is a really robust conference adjustment. So, um, one, on a big level, how are you feeling about the college football season? And then we'll, we'll tamper down and talk specifically about the metrics and kind of how you're looking at teams with conference-only play. I mean, it's really good for, you know, my job security and whatnot to have, to, to have this thought of a, like a seven-month college football season from early September through like late April or whenever. The, like that sounds great. It sounds horrible from ed, like an everything else perspective. Yeah. Um, but apparently that's what we're still going to try for. It's, it, it's funny. I, I mean – I, if you asked me two days ago, like if I had to put my life savings on an outcome, like how does this all play out? My, my guess would have still been that everybody still postpones and we try it in the winter spring. Like everybody, all the wording from the past couple of weeks from everybody in the big 12 and ACC and SEC has been very careful. Like we're going to keep trying to work toward uh, a season, taking the right steps to, you know, and all that. And, um, for very obvious reasons, students are going to come back. We're going to see a spike in cases. Um, we're going to freak out, and we might and we might postpone. Still, um, it seems like in the last couple of days that we might see a lifeline with the fall season, just because people freaked out so fast. Um, you know, North Carolina has already shut things down. Notre Dame has gone, you know, to on campus, or, or I guess they're not. They're still on campus, but they're not in classrooms. Um, the fact that we kind of tore down the facade really, really quickly uh, and the fact that North Carolina's president and everybody else is like, no, 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 we're still playing football. Um, they, the fact that this has happened so quickly, we can kind of finally move past the idea that, that athletes are, stu- are students first or normal students. No, students getting the normal student experience. And um, now that we we can move past that, number one, now we got to go revisit things like name, image, and likeness and stop introducing straw men to tear down on the Senate floor. But that's a completely different topic. If we acknowledge that they're different and they have a different experience, then they can play football. They can bubble up on campus or in or, or, you know in their athletic facilities. Nobody, they don't have to mingle with other students. Students don't have to mingle with other students and therefore spread everything. And uh, we can kind of move on with this really weird situation there were no right answers but if you want football this was the path that had to be chosen and the fact that everybody freaked out so freaking quickly about it kind of makes me think they might actually try to pull it off now in the fall and it might actually work because we've 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 gotten rid of the uh the pretense yeah yeah and well it's interesting because like ohio state for instance you know justin fields was like oh the campus is nice when I get over there. Like Ohio State has been doing, you know, remote classes and isolated right. and all that. So, th- so there's not precedent for it. But yeah, getting kind of the standard of, hey, a student athlete is not a student in the normal sense. And then we can kind of make these accommodations, whatever the baggage that comes with that is at least uh, we can we can acknowledge that and, and move forward. And so that might happen. Yeah, Grant. Well, and it's crazy that it took a, a worldwide pandemic for us to admit that <laughs> student athletes now, are students. But now you know. we are admitting it. We're still not doing anything about it. And the next right. time right. Greg Sankey or Mark Emmert goes onto the Senate floor and says, "Well, we just out of student the, the amateurism, amateurism, we can't have them, you know, being treated any differently," because they will, and it'll be just doubly infuriating. And it was already <laughs> infuriating. So that that's going to be maddening. But no, first step is acknowledging it. And then eventually, maybe there's some sort of acceptance of we just can't, we have to treat them like, like, like what they've always been, uh, and stop kind of stopping on the rights there. Yeah. Well, um, kind of tangentially that we, we've talked in the past or the recent, the recent past um, on the podcast about 
what this might do for potential like centralization of college football for the power five schools. Um, do you think this is going to have any lasting ramifications for like the governance of the NCAA and kind of how the power five schools coordinate with each other? I, I hope, but I, you know, I've been, I wrote about this a couple of weeks ago. I've been thinking about it for all, like all summer. I don't know what the answer is. Like if the answer is, well, we need somebody, we need a commissioner for the sport. Well, where does that come into play? Is that the NCAA just appointing like another athletic director to do that? Because then it just, you know, what, what is that going to do exactly? Is it going to come from Congress? Because at this point, every time I find myself realizing, well, you know, they have the athletes bill of rights that they're working on. Maybe Congress will create some sort of, you know, committee for football and, and that's probably better, but it still sounds terrible. Yeah. Um, I don't know what a good answer is. I don't know what answer I would like. And so it kind of, I, I hope change comes because this is ridiculous. This whole thing, this whole last two months, waiting a month for power five conferences to each figure out their schedules separately from each other this fall, um, just in case they do play. Uh, all the other G5 conferences having to wait on them, uh, all that happening the way it did. And then, you know, two conferences canceling, but the other three are going to still try to play. It was, it's just been horrible. And, and, yeah. I'd like to think it's untenable. I don't know. I mean, if we don't have another pandemic, maybe everything can resume, but it sounds like a, that would be a massively wasted opportunity. Well, and it's not just untenable, it's unfair. And we kind of talked about this last week, Parker, with Matt Jennings, and that, you know, it's amazing that, as you said, Bill, these conferences didn't have a plan sooner. I mean, the Big Ten's language when they came out that they were canceling was that, well, last weekend we started talking with coaches about potentially yeah. moving to the spring. I was like, how did you wait until last weekend to finally have these discussions? And it's not just unfair to the coaches and the fans and the student athletes. I mean, you, you know, you, you rope in the, you know, the college towns, all these people always talk about the businesses that survive off college towns. And, you know, that's true. It, it, it doesn't mean that it's, you know, that we shouldn't have canceled or postponed the season, but it is true that these people will be hurt. And the fact that they were kind of left floating in the air, as you said, it's just, it, it, it's maddening. And it, it, it's just, it, it makes me frustrated every time we talk about it. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, well, so, so, so Bill, getting, getting a little more specific and, and kind of in the, in the stats arena. So you're looking forward, you're still making predictions and projections and SP plus is still, you know, the, the gears are humming and everything. What, uh, is your attitude towards the season with, uh, dramatically fewer interaction points between conferences? How are you approaching conference adjustments? How are you going to try and make your system a little more robust given our limited information this season? Well, I mean, from a conference adjustment standpoint, I don't, I, I don't know what there is to do really like um, in conference. The thing is you're not going to really notice. I, I'm, I'm guessing this, the general like week to week game to game success where it's going to be about normal for SP plus just because it's going to get a re pretty good read on those teams within those conferences. Right. I mean, you're, you're going to have a pretty good idea that Alabama is X number of points better than so-and-so. Um, I wasn't going to use my own team for that example. So I went with so-and-so, but um, you know, you're going to, you, you, so for, in terms of that, like within each conference, the, it should perform pretty well. There's still the aspect of, you know, no spring practice, new coaches. There might, you know, there might be a drag there. There could all be all those factors. We'll see, but I would expect week to week performance to be okay. It's just that conference piece when you're basically relying on a handful of like games between ACC teams in Liberty and Big 12 teams and FCS teams and a couple like, you know, TCU and SMU and a couple other semi-interesting games. Um, you're just not going to get much from that. And so what, you know, until I find up, a, figure out a better idea, what I think I'm, I, it's just going to, 
the, the projections, the conference hierarchy that was kind of created from the preseason projections, that's just kind of going to exist for most of the year. And, and, you know, I think the average, the projected average rankings were like, uh, what, SEC first, Big 10, Big 12, Pac-12, ACC, uh, you know, barring some sort of oddity or some ex- really unexpected results in those non-conference games, I would assume it stays about the same at least. So I think you made the joke on Twitter, Ohio State just going to stay number one in the yeah, SP Plus. Sure. And so, yeah, fair yeah. enough. Yeah. No, no, it, I mean, it, it, it'll infuriate everybody repeatedly. And that's, you know, the, the comedy is repetition. If I can release mm-hmm. a set of rankings every week that has zero and zero Ohio State number one, that's comedy. <laughs> that is. Outside of Ohio State, and I guess you, you might have already kind of touched on this, but do you think there's a single school or conference that, not to say anybody benefits from this, but would you know, is there a school that says, hey, now we have a certain opponent off the schedule or now, you know, things are kind of shaking out well for us? Uh, the team with the projections that changed the most, um, just based on like old schedule versus new schedule, Notre Dame benefits because their schedule is easier now. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and I find that hilarious because of all the, you know, they're too chicken to join a conference kind of stuff. Like, no, their, their schedule is legitimately easier now. Uh, everybody else – between the simple fact that they're playing fewer games and then they're getting rid of a couple likely wins, most everybody on the schedule, uh, their, their win total is projected. I think the average is like their win total is projected to change by like 1.6 game wins on average. Uh, Notre Dame's went down by like half a game. Uh, their win percent, their projected win percentage went up. I think they were the only ones uh, where that happened. There were them in like maybe Georgia Tech or something. So that was the funniest thing to me by far. Um, we had this Notre Dame situation where they maybe they may end up the, the most likely team to play Clemson in the ACC title game, and there's a serious opportunity on the table for them to join a conference, win it, and then leave it immediately and go back to being independent. And I will just laugh for years. They're not going. Clemson's going to win. I realize, but until they do, I get to pretend that that's a mm-hmm. possibility. Definitely. Hey, uh, I'm good. Yeah, I mean, like the the potential this season for large scale irony is unbounded, which I feel bad <laughs> like delighting in that because obviously terrible circumstances. I'm I'm horrified that we're here and where we are, but there's some there's some high level college football comedy that could potentially happen, like the SEC schools meeting and all getting mad about how they you know they're being questioned about how they drew the non conference opponents. Um, or the cross-division rivalry and all that. Like, there's just a lot of general hilarity uh, from the complete lack of preparation. So, Yeah, no, it was um, – the, 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 I appreciated the SEC's um, honesty in the way they drew up the schedules mm-hmm. because there's no – whether they'll say it or not, it was very, very clear. They did not want to wait, risk an opportunity where all the heavyweights played all the heavyweights. There were no – you know, there was no gap there, and the champion ended up a really good 8-3. and three. And, you know, the playoff committee selects – well, and I, I guess when they were doing this, it was going to be all five P5 uh, conferences were still playing. So you don't want to risk a situation where everybody else has one loss and your champ has three and you get left out of this weird playoff situation so i mean kudos to them for you know we're going to give everybody the weakest possible combo of, of opponents and uh we're going to end up with a good healthy 10 and one champion so good for them for being honest about it yeah um okay so before we dial in and talk about the big 12 a little bit um my other random thought i just had there notre dame in the acc effectively opens up a playoff spot right because notre dame goes undefeated they go to the playoff that's that happens um, and so them being in the ACC kind of uh, kind of opens up another spot. But you mean just thinking about it in terms of a three-conference race at this point? Yeah, like in logistics. 
Um, yeah, I admittedly haven't spent three seconds thinking about just a three conference playoff race because I'm just, I know, I assume other things will change, but I mean, theoretically you are like, that is, this is also stupid. Yes, that is absolutely <laughs> on the table, um, that we could end up with that situation. I mean, I, I think you're going to end up with like a, a 12 and 0 Clemson, a 10 and 1 Alabama, a 10 and 1 Oklahoma or Texas, probably Oklahoma. Uh, and then that other spot's going to be kind of weird. It'll be like a nine and three Notre Dame, a, or a nine and three North Carolina, an eight and three Georgia, or LS or Florida, or whatever. I guess not LSU. LSU would be eight and two or seven and three. Um, a nine and two Texas, or an eight and three Texas or Oklahoma State, or whatever. I don't exactly know how you do that. Well, well no, I know exactly what you do. You you named the AAC champion as the fourth team. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. Sorry, I was thinking way too hard about that. Here's, here's, the, here's the moment for the AAC right now. Gosh, speaking of large-scale irony, it would be amazing for UCF to get in the playoff yes. and win it this year and have an asterisk. <laughs> that would be so funny. Um, I, I mean, they, yeah. it's not like they would complain. Right, right. Like, oh, yeah, put whatever no. asterisk. You know, we, we won. We won it fair and square-ish. <laughs> right, right. um, okay, so you mentioned Oklahoma and Texas. Uh, let's, let's talk about the Big 12 a little bit just because, you know, we're here and doing that. Um, who, does, who does SP like? S, SP Plus thinks that Oklahoma and Texas – are the number one two teams in uh, the Big 12? Uh, that was how it was back in February. Oh. I'm going to pull up. I, I've been trying to, as hard as possible to keep up with the roster changes. Ooh. We um, need like our breaking news, our flashing updates yeah. to go here. Um, <laughs> well, it's, yeah, whatever. But yeah, no, actually, <laughs> um, if we rank only the 76 or whatever um, fall teams, the fall football teams, mm. Right now, currently, you've got OU at 5th, Texas at 10th, OSU at 15th, Iowa State at 19th, Baylor at 20, and TCU at 22. So, I mean, that's, you know, six points separate uh, Baylor and Texas, and TCU is about a point and a half behind those. So, it's still um, – you can see how, especially in a situation where there's no home field advantage to speak of, I guess I'm just going to use, like, one point to start off with and see and make adjustments as it goes. But – you can kind of see how, like, you know, there, there are quite a few games that'll decide it that'll probably be decided within a touchdown. Interesting. For Texas um, games, Bill, do you just take away that point? It's not going to have a home advantage anyway. Oh, well, sure, sure. Yeah, of course. <laughs> um, Grant, be, be nice. The, the stadium's under construction, okay? Um, yeah. So, so, Bill, why does, I mean, Oklahoma's Oklahoma. Why does SP Plus like Texas so much? It's funny to have gotten to, to have fielded this question all off season after fielding, uh, why does SP plus hate Texas so much all off season? Um, but uh, the situation is they've got, they return all the stuff they didn't return last year. They, they went into 2019 with just a almost completely sophomore laden secondary. And then that secondary got banged up a lot, which of course SP plus didn't predict, but the, the continuity, the, or the total lot, lack of continuity on defense, especially in the back seven or eight or whatever was significant. And then, and so even though the offense was projected to take a step forward after being really kind of smoke and mirrors, a good portion of 2018, just, you know, getting by on those three yard uh, Ellinger runs on third and three, um, sometimes not getting by with it at all, but doing it in the right games and all that. Um, they, they were still projected to improve offensively and they ended up improving far more than projected offensively, actually. Um, so, you know, looking at, obviously they lose Duvernay and, and Colin Johnson, but getting back uh, Ellinger again, getting back Brennan Eagles, uh, you know, Tariq Black's uh, stats have been folded in, even though they weren't 
dramatically impressive. Uh, but the offensive line returns more experience. So the offense should be fine in that regard. And the defense returns everything they didn't a year ago. They almost the entire secondary, um, almost every linebacker they lost uh bimage i guess he he opted out and they lost roach but they still have most of the defensive line so basically it's seen an opportunity for all the improvement that everybody thought was going to happen last year um and it kind of nailed texas last year so I got, i'm going to believe it and assume that they are really actually going to improve this year yeah can can bill can is is this on your radar can sm excuse me i keep saying the a <laughs> darn it um lawyers <laughs> take that assist. out uh, can SP plus account for these dramatic variations in usage? So like Sam Ellinger, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Against Baylor, 19 carries against LSU, 19 carries against Oklahoma, 23 carries. And then basically 12, 12 carries every other game. Right. right. So like Tom Herman talks about that. They specifically do that to try and save Ellinger. Is there right. any week to week consideration of, Hey, they're, they're changing their styles drastically given opponents or anything like that. Or does that come out in the wash over the course of the season? I, I like to think it comes out in the wash. I mean, obviously, 2018 was a really unique deal. Um, you know, just they, they were they were a little too good at just flipping the switch and saying, okay, well, we, now we have to score points and scoring them and then flipping it back off. Uh, and say, Like, that doesn't usually last more than a year, and it didn't. Uh, but they were still just across the board, even with him running less on average last year. He only had – 129 like uh, non-sack rushes last year in 13 games. Um, the offense was off the charts last year. I think I don't like top 15 in offensive SP plus, I believe, uh, because they actually sort of had a running game, not an amazing one, but a decent one that didn't require that. And it could pass. They had Duvernay as basically the best running back in the Big 12, taking all those quick uh, sideline passes and jumping up field with them. Uh, they had a lot of the efficiency that they lacked. So I like. I understand he does it, and he did it a ton in 2018. But I, I don't know how to. There's just not enough of a sample for anything in college football to really start to to you know cut it up and and use only parts of it here and there. I've never been able to wrap my head around doing that. Yeah. Right. Well, and and we've spent some time talking about the top of the conference, and before we get to TCU in the dead middle, <laughs> I want to go to the bottom end. Um, there were. Uh, Three new coaches in the Big 12 last year, Chris Kleiman at Kansas State, Matt Wells at Tech, and one of our favorites in years, Neil Brown at West Virginia. Um, is there a program among those three that you're most interested in seeing how this year goes for them? Because it seems like year two or it will be a turning point for some of those programs. Yeah, I, I, have a, I mean, from a number standpoint, they're really, really closely bunched together. Um, I'm looking at the sheet here. I've, I've already forgotten like three times that I've separated out, them out. I see they're all top 40 teams. That surprised me. And then I remembered, no, that's like they're top 60 teams. It's <laughs> mm-hmm, just mm-hmm. whatever. So it's good to confuse yourself with your own spreadsheets. But um, the I, last year was kind of artificially bad for West Virginia in a lot of ways that wasn't sustainable. And I, I felt like Kansas State, and this was a very Kansas State-ish thing to say, but they didn't necessarily – they kind of punched above their, their – their win total mm-hmm. was a little higher than it probably should have been. Um, you know, they, they, I think my second-order win total, the, the thing I used to kind of like who, – who would have won this game more often than not, they should have had about six wins, not eight. Uh, very, like I said, very Kansas State-ish. They, they overachieved by at least a win per year during Snyder's kind of rejuvenation period. But um, I, so I'm, I'm really curious what happens to Kansas State now that they've lost what they've lost, like what the entire mm-hmm. offensive line basically. And um, they, they have a lot, both lines really have just a ton of rebuilding to do. Uh, I, I don't love that. 
so I guess then, you know, process of elimination, I think my, my answer might be Texas Tech. I'm, I'm curious. <laughs> they, were, they, they had some tight losses. Matt Wells, horrible win-loss record in like one possession games except for his very last year at Utah State. Uh, otherwise, just every single year, they lose about two-thirds of the game, of those tight games. They did it again last year. I have no idea if that's just really unfortunate noise, if there's something to it. Um, but assuming it, if they turn that around, they were already pretty far down the road. They're going to have a good receiving core. Um, theoretically, if mm-hmm. Alan Bowman ever stays healthy for a full season, um, that adds like raises the ceiling it a little bit. I never really loved Jet Duffy. Uh, so I think – you know, their defense will at least be experienced. I think Texas Tech has the most opportunity to overachieve their projections. Um, although, I, and, and again, I do expect decent improvement from West Virginia, but I guess Tech is the answer. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, Parker, if you want to talk about a team that uh, was really bad in one-score games last year, we can talk about TCU now. Uh, if we if we have to, uh, Big Bill. Twelve was amazing, by the way. Just to, like uh, Baylor won all those games and and almost freaking made the playoff. Iowa State and TCU lost all those games. Uh, it was a really weird, like, year of extremes in that regard. Sorry to bring it up. Yeah, no, no. Um, we, we have talked long and wide about the cause and the, you know, what, what was wrong or whatever. I guess my question is, Bill, why was TCU bad last year, uh, according to SP Plus? Or your, you know, wild speculative opinion. We'll take either. <laughs> I mean, they weren't, according to SP+. Plus. I mean, they, they weren't as good as they have been, obviously. There's been regression offensively, duh. But uh, they were – no, actually, I, I take that back. They were 43rd in 2018, and they were 43rd in 2019. So, um, hmm. you know, that's certainly down from 9th in 2014, 15th in 20 uh, – yeah, 9th in 14, 15th in 15, and 16th in 17. Um it's clearly a step backwards and clearly most of that happens on the, has happened on the offensive end. Last year, the defense faded a, a good amount, but I, you know, they, they were most of what they needed to be. They just couldn't make like the extra two plays in the fourth quarter. And it turned a whole heck of a lot of ball games. So when you step back and realize that, you know, Duggan was a freshman, most of the, a lot of the receivers aside from uh, Rieger were, were sophomores. Um, I guess the offensive line was pretty experienced, but the defense, the defense that now brings just about everybody back aside from, uh, you know, a couple of good uh, defensive backs, you know, it, they weren't that far away. And so, you know, losing, I guess, Scott Gaines and Gladney in the secondary, it does hurt. But I also can't really worry about a TCU secondary. So yeah. um, if that's okay, the rest of the defense is experienced. The offense is a heck of a lot more experienced. I don't know why they wouldn't uh, be able to at least get back to like a top 30-ish level. 30 out of 130, not yeah. you know, 30 yeah. out of 70 or whatever. Right. Well, so when you, when you talk about like, you know, the step back because of the defense – or, you know, defense faded, step back because of the offense. Mm-hmm. How much do offense and defense in your ratings or in your estimation kind of feed off of and, and either inhibit or enhance each other? I, it's a team-by-team thing, obviously, but you definitely mm-hmm. see it. I mean, and you see uh, opponents treat you differently in that way, too. I always um, – I learned a lot having to watch every game of the 2015 Missouri season um, – having to kind of felt like it, Um, (laughs) you know, they, the offense completely falls apart, bunch of injuries on the offensive line, freshman quarterback, um, you know, receivers, they lost all three uh, starting receivers for the second straight year. Uh, So there was a double dip there and they went from being ninth in in my offensive rankings in 2013 to 123rd in 2015. But at the same time, their defense uh, jumped to third uh, in 2015. 
And I, it, that was great. Like Marcus Golden, like lots of really, really good defensive players. It was a very good defense. It probably wasn't the third best in the country, however. And part of that is because op- opponents knew they did not have to take any risks whatsoever because they were going to make Missouri punt and their, de- and their offense would eventually get good field position and score. So with extremely conservative game plans, Missouri teed off on them. And it was great. But if they had to score more, they probably would have been able to score more. And, and so – you do see that relationship sometimes and you know it could have been the same story with the with a team like TCU where the where the offense just can't figure out how any consistency and eventually you know whether it's a morale thing or whatever you're on the field too long whatever it is your your own performance is affected it's not every time but you you can definitely kind of see those cause and effect relationships sometimes for sure and and is there so take a team like TCU or just team X or whatever that kind of has a similar offense, you know, sluggish, anemic passing with the freshman quarterback and we'll call it a non-inspiring run game. Is there one stat that you look at that that would indicate, or I guess a mark that a team has to hit in order to improve? Is, Is there one stat that correlates well with offensive improvement? Yeah, I mean, the efficiency thing is number one. Um, that's the way it's always been, you know, in, especially these last few years and everything I've tried to study. Um, if you're explosive, that's great. Uh, but big plays are random even when you're good at them. The part of this whole thing that you can control is your down-to-down efficiency, getting five yards on first down, getting 70% of the, the yards on second down, staying in the, or, or just getting the first down on second down. That's really good. Mm-hmm. Um you know, those are the things you have most in your control and the big plays and the turnovers and all these other things. They are, it's not pure, complete randomness by any means, but it's just hard. You can't call on, okay, well, let's, let's call the 60-yard play now. Um, we really need a 60-yard game. Let's call the 60-yard play. But you can call the five-yard play and you can execute those pretty well. And um, that helps so much because among other things, I mean, it helps with, uh, well, I mean, it helps in score points, but it also helps in field position as much as special teams matter in field position if you get, you know, two first downs and you, then you punt, you've probably flipped the field. Um, it just helps so much to be able to, to consistently avoid those second and long and third and long situations. And obviously uh, TCU did not do an amazing job of that last year. Yeah. Well, the, the obvious solution is you should run inside zone every first and 10, and then you won't get into, you know, second and 13. And, uh, and obviously, you know, when you've got a freshman quarterback, you're trying to protect your op- right, options. Right. But yeah, it wasn't good. Um, okay, so kind of TC-centric, we're just, you know, all over the place here. I'm interested, because you've you just been in college football for so long. What do you make of the Jerry Kill hire at TCU? You know, Jerry Kill was brought on out of Virginia Tech to be kind of the offensive head coach, is the word we've heard, and oversee the offensive side of things. What do you make of that? What do you think is going on there? I, I, I never know about those situations. I mean, he's a smart guy. He's a smart coach. The, the, you know, the reason he's not Minnesota head coach right now is it has nothing to do with you know, his coaching ability, obviously. So I see it as, as, as something, you know, it's a good, it's another good offensive mind in the room. So it can't hurt. Um, maybe it, it causes weird things to the culture. Maybe the remaining staff, they don't blend because he is kind of a unique dude. You know, he, and he had Tracy Clay's another really unique dude. It, you know, some coaches don't necessarily play well with others, but I have no idea if that's the situation or not. So I'm not, when I, when I can't, when I can talk myself into it and out of it every three seconds, I, I just kind of stop. And I would assume that, you know, if they improve this year, the, it, it's going to be primarily because Duggan's no longer a freshman and he's got some okay continuity in the receiving core and things like that. Yeah. Uh, that is a perfect segue um, to the one segment that we have on this podcast. 
which is that um, Bill, our only this recurring is your turn. The only recurring segment that we have in this podcast, which is Bill, would you like to say something nice about Max Duggan? Um, it I he the, I mean he was a freshman. Bill, last year. even Shayhan <laughs> said something nice. Bill, come on, you got something nice to say about Max I mean, Duggan? He, he, the, <laughs> obviously he was dreadfully inconsistent. That's not my nice thing, but yeah. um. Uh, he he did occasionally look the part. Like you see the arm, you know, you you, you see a lot of the components uh, that you need to be a good quarterback. It's just we don't know if he can actually quarterback yet. That's kind of the and, – and it can turn – look, I just referenced 2015 Missouri. Drew Locke was horrible in 2015. Um, you know, he, and again, he had no offensive line. He had no receivers. He had a dreadful run game. He had no chance, but he still looked really bad most of the time. And then as soon as the pieces around him got better and more experienced and um, new offensive – new inputs came in from other coaches, uh, suddenly he was pretty good. Uh, obviously, we can debate how good and, you know, get 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 draft Twitter involved again. But um, he still went from being a completely overwhelmed freshman who was a lot worse than Max Duggan to something decent. So that, that really is like you see the components. Um, there's nothing to there's nothing in his stat line, so to speak, that really backs up any sort of he didn't get better late. He didn't. There was no there was no definitive improvement here and there. Uh, he struggled kind of across the board for the most part. There was no like single category where things went uh, haywire, but he made some plays here and there. And that'll always mm. continue to give you hope. And they have other good quarterbacks theoretically in the pipeline. If it doesn't work out with Duggan, you know, it's not all eggs in that basket, I guess. Yeah. It's well, one of those things. You, all, I was going to say all of our eggs are in that basket on this podcast. We are, we are decisively yeah, pro. Yeah. yeah. That's one of those things where it's like, I, you know, every single team can talk about the context of why this guy wasn't as good as he could be or whatever. And, you know, we're not delusional. Duggan was bad last year, but at times he was not bad. And so that, that leads us to have a lot of hope. Um, Yeah. Okay. So uh, a a couple questions, I guess, that are, we're just going to be kind of filling up or or rounding out on TCU. We don't want to keep you too long, take up too much of your time. Um, What does, you know, what does improvement look like for a team that was, uh, 82nd in success rate last year. Like what, how do you, what is, what is attainable improvement for that offense look like? Well, it's funny because the run game really was pretty efficient. So losing your top three or top two running backs and, you know, a good interior lineman, that's not, that's not great. Um, although, you know, the guys, there are guys in the, you know, without even talking about a certain star freshman, there are a couple other guys Mm -hmm. who got small tastes of action and, and seemed pretty good. Um, so maybe, you know, maybe the running back position will be, uh, somewhere between fine and excellent, depending on what kind of star freshman you got on your hands. But, um, you know, if you can maintain kind of a top 40 level in that regard, then, you know, you it was, I'm looking at 110th in passing success rate, uh, last year. Uh, not great, but, uh, if you kind of figure out JD, JD Spielman could have been kind of a steal, like a, you know, a, a great free agency move kind of thing. And that he's very efficient. Um, he can, he's got a breakaway speed. Obviously he looks like he, he's built like a slot receiver, but he can get downfield, but he can, he can, he has a very, very high catch rate. He has a high success rate. Generally um, those things, if, if suddenly you've got, if suddenly you can kind of look around the field like Texas did last year and you can run semi-efficiently between the tackles, you can throw really quick to the outside and consistently gain five, seven, nine, 12 yards on that then Duggan suddenly doesn't have to do nearly as much. 
Um, everything kind of just builds from there. And so it really, if you have, if you start to look around and realize you have those components, if Spielman really does do what he, a lot of what he did for Nebraska last year, then, I mean, maybe those components work really well together. Um, you've got a couple bigger receivers. You've got a couple small, quick guys. You've got Spielman, who's theoretically quick and vertical. Um, there, there might be a decent amount to like. It's just when it was that bad last year, yeah, you can't, you can't count on it improving that much, even though it's possible. Right, right. Yeah, and, and stuff like the rushing game, I'm, I'm fascinated with, and, and I'll, I'll ramble for a second, and then I have a, a question at the end of this, so bear with me. But, like, Max Duggan was, uh, at, at some rate, behind only Trevor Lawrence in yeah. creating value on his, uh, with his legs. And yeah. most of that was Max Duggan running for his life, um, especially on third downs, which, you know, increased value because leverage and, and everything there. So um, when you talk about the rushing game being 34th and, and, and the passing game being 110th, um, where are you kind of on the, you know, is, uh, well, two, two questions. So I'll separate those out to make that a little more palatable. One, uh, I don't know if you and I have talked about this. Uh, do you separate, are you able to separate out uh, QB scrambles from designed runs? Um, I, I have access to scramble data now, but in terms of like the play-by-play engine that feeds SP Plus, no. Okay. Do you think that's significant? I know like Aaron, uh, Aaron Chats at Football Outsiders has done a little bit about his DVOA with and without scrambles counting as, as passes or whatever. Mm-hmm. Do you think that would substantially change your rushing calculations? Um, well, sh- well, sure. I mean, it wouldn't change anything about the overall offensive rating. So, um, you know, th- there's still that. But I mean, I- I'm-, I'm sure it-, it would at least at least for outliers. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Um, you know, there aren't going to be that many examples of like if, if, if you have a quarterback who has to run for his life a lot, you know, chances are he's not going to do that very well after a while. So right. it's not, it's, you're not going to see many examples of a team that like that where if you change it from rushing to pass and suddenly like all their success rates have completely flipped and suddenly they're good at running or they're, you know, a lot better at passing or whatever. Like yeah. I, I don't see it really working like that. Um, but no, it, it is a thing. I mean, scrambling, among other things, scrambling is good. And if you're good at it, your rushing success rate is going to be a little higher. I was just looking like they were – I had uh, TCU's rushing success rate at 46% for the year, which is good. Uh, Duggan, not separate, uh, removing sacks but not separating out scrambles from intentional runs was at 52%. So that probably helped a little bit. But uh, let's see, like Anderson was at 42%. Uh, the other running backs were all at like 47 or above. Um, so – you know, I, I, I would say that it, you, there was value in the run game overall, even if some of it was kind of unintentional run value. Um, in your, in your one, in your college football philosophy and two, in, in your metric, uh, are rushing and passing perfect substitutes? Are, are, are yards yards in, in, in the same context? Or do you, basically I'm asking, where do you stand on the establish the run debate, Bill? <laughs> Oh, well, yeah, I mean, I, I wrote for Football Outsiders for a long time, so I assume you probably know. No, I, I have, I've split it completely out of like run versus pass. I look at everything in terms of standard downs and passing downs. Or not everything, but I mean, just basically, can you move the ball effectively when defenses can't key on any one thing? When you can run or pass effectively as standard downs, first downs, second and seven or less, third and four or less. Can you do that effectively? And then when you have to pass, can you pass, you know, the passing out situations or, you know, I guess you don't have to pass, but can you reliably scramble for seven yards on third and seven? Um, however you get those yards, whether it's a, a quick passing game, whether it's a lot of vertical uh, attempts downfield, whether it's a good run game, whether it's the option, whatever it is, it comes down to, can you move the ball in uh, 
in, in standard down situations and then can you throw when you need to throw and if you can do those two things i really don't care how you do it yeah um obviously everybody in college it's different than pro just in that there are a lot more philosophies a lot more different talent levels and you got to try different things um but it just still whether we're talking pro or college it just comes down to that can you move the ball effectively stay on schedule and then when you're behind schedule can you catch up gotcha well, and there are a lot of teams in the Big 12, widening back out a bit, but looking at it through the lens of the TCU defense, there are a lot of teams in the Big 12 that do that by passing or just by yeah. being explosive. In your metrics and kind of in your estimation, are the Big 12's offenses of the elite teams, Oklahoma, Texas, Oklahoma State, will they be as explosive this year as they were in previous years? I mean, I know there's a lot of rotation of talent, but it's a lot of really good guys. And I'm just trying to think if, if the TCU defense is peaking right now, are other offenses speaking at the same time? Um, Texas obviously needs a couple new guys. Um, I really, really like Brennan Eagles. Really like Brennan Eagles. And the uh, the guy who was behind Duvernay last year, uh, Jake Smith, um, I, you know, is a small sample, but his stats were almost like identical to Duvernay's, like target for target. So that probably, I think they're probably okay, but they do need a couple of new guys to step up, uh, you know, whether it's young or veteran or whatever. Um, and Oklahoma's receivers, that's, that's like TCU's defensive backs. Like, I'm mm-hmm. not going to pretend to worry. Um, I, 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 like, I really like, you know, Charleston Rambo, Nick, Jaden Hazelwood. Those guys didn't have to do a ton last year. Uh, they're going to be asked to do more now. But, uh, you know, I, between that and Theo Howard apparently is healthy. Like, I saw he was practicing at least. Um, I kind of like that Obi Obiallo kid from Marshall, if he's still even there. I, I saw that he was going. But, you know, between that and then just a brand new crop of freshmen, you know, the Marvin mm-hmm. Mims and Conyers and all that, like, I can't pretend to worry about OU's vertical offense, especially if, if Spencer Rattler is half as good as he's supposed to be. Um, they're going to make a lot of big plays. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, Bill, a couple, couple rapid fire here as we wrap up. And uh, we, we, uh, my first question uh, kind of related to Spencer Rattler. Who's the best quarterback in the Big 12 right now? Oh, um, it's, this is a hopeful answer in that I'm either going to say Spencer Rattler or Spencer Sanders because that would be the most fun. Um, if those guys, especially Sanders, Sanders, Sanders was just a lit firework last year. He was one of my favorite players to watch because something great or terrible was about to happen no matter what. <laughs> yeah. And it was a lot of great. And it would be one at, right after another. He'd scramble, tightrope the sideline, get 38 yards, and then throw the, this, the silliest pick you've ever seen. It was wonderful television. Um, but in terms of proven quality, like as boring an answer it is, it is. I it would kind of be hard not to say Ellinger, uh, I, even if I'm not, even if I'm not predicting him to be a Heisman candidate. It's still he's obviously the most proven, I think. So, Bill, general interest for TCU fans: uh, Missouri now features a, a one-two punch of Sean Robinson at quarterback potentially, and uh, Curtis Looper as a, a, a offensive coordinator or co-offensive coordinator. Um, and I saw recently the quote uh, from. Uh, Eli Drinkowitz about wanting teams to have to prep for, you know, three or four yeah. different offenses and all that. So tell us about what's going on with Mizzou, how Luber <laughs> plugs in there and, and what Sean Robinson looks to be for that offense. Um, yeah, I, I, that was the most honest answer I've ever seen. He was asked about the quarterback situation because um, he's got Sean Robinson. He's got Taylor Powell, who started a couple games late last year. He, start, he has uh, Connor Bazelak, who started the last game against Arkansas, looked good for about three snaps and then tore his ACL. So, like, they're all up for the job. They got a freshman who I, I doubt it, uh, plays a major role. But he basically said, you know, especially because they were given Alabama right off the bat, which is polite, um, 
he was like, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna name a starter. I want them to have to prepare for everybody. I want them to have to prepare for, you know, I, I want them to have to watch film of my offenses at, at NC State and Appalachian State. I want them to have to watch uh, Bush Hamdan's offense at Washington. I want them to have to watch Looper's offense at TCU. I want them to have to plan for everything because I just want to give them a big workload. Is was his answer, um, which I appreciate. Um, I mean, I, I would assume that Robinson is the front runner. Uh, you know, he does as inconsistent as he was at times throwing the ball. He, he's his legs are more proven than anybody else's arm in that in that quarterback room right now. Mm-hmm. And so you would assume that, especially when you look at them returning Larry Roundtree and Tyler Beatty, um, you would assume they could probably generate a pretty decent run game just from that. And then the passing game will be kind of a work in progress. Um, receiving core is completely transform they brought in damon hazelton for, from virginia tech they lost their their own top three receivers but they have hazelton they got jalen knox who was good as a freshman but not as it was pretty bad last year they got a kid from angelo state like a thousand yard receiver from angelo state kiki tism uh as a uh, grad transfer and he's apparently impressing everybody so it's going to be brand new i think uh, you know they're going to be they're going to probably try to use tempo like as at least that kind of that variable weapon that everybody uses tempo as um and obviously looper has been around that a lot he's been around spread a lot but the one thing i know about drinkwitz is just like you know at both nc state and and uh at app state he just kind of figures like what can we do really well let's do that and so i would assume that leads to a decent run game uh and a decent attempt at a good run game which again probably favors robinson well, uh, Bill, I will take your mind off Mizzou, Alabama, and just ask what your <laughs> prediction is for uh, Bayern PSG this weekend. Well, Bayern tried to change my mind this t- t- by looking <laughs> by looking kind of garbage like today. That was the mm-hmm. worst I'd seen them look in months. Um, but I am going to stick with Bayern because Bayern has been the best team in Europe for the last nine months, basically. Um, and P- PSG only decided to join them for about three game- matches, so we're going to say Bayern. Lewandowski got robbed of the Ballon d'Or, but yeah. You, you you got any Parker? You got any thoughts about Byron and the Ballon d'Or and uh... the the delegate from the Democratic People's Republic of Stats War has no comment on this issue. Okay, <laughs> uh, okay Bill. Last question. And we'll get out of here. I appreciate you being on and, and great timing. Um, without you know spoiling anything you're working on or giving away the secrets or all that. <laughs> what what am I working on? Everything's been postponed. There's nothing uh, to work on right now. I got nothing. <laughs> okay, then 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 spoil everything. Uh, what's your like weird college football like? If I had the data if I was like omniscient about anything I wanted in college football, this is the one data point that I would absolutely go get. Uh, I would, I have for a long time wanted to be able to play with offensive line grades. If that counts, um, number one, just to see if how effective they really are uh, and how accurate they really are. But like, I've talked to just enough coaches. I've gotten to know just enough coaches to realize like, man, I just need to hold up in an office for like a month um, and, and look at every piece of data they possibly have that they're using to evaluate their own players, uh, the weight room data, you know, try to get all of that. Like if you're, cause, cause in the end, like the biggest unexplored area and it's unexplored because it's kind of impossible to explore so far is development. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've always had kind of a general, you know, there's talent acquisition, there's talent development, and then there's talent deployment. Deployment's easy. That's play calling and efficiency and all that stuff you know, acquisition is approximately, you know, recruiting rankings, but some guys are, are, you know, some schools and some uh, team cultures, 
developed guys way better than others. And it can't just be like weight room numbers, but that's probably part of it. It can't just be, um, you know, a coach, the coach's own reputation. Uh, but I would love to, to start diving in with like the, the player grades and the weight room figures and just start to play around with like what actually matters, what actually seems to, to correlate uh, with development. Interesting. Yeah. That, that's one of those kind of big, that, cause it, it's the coaching effect because like coaches influence recruiting, but then recruiting influences how coaches perform. And then that influences recruiting. It's all tied up together. Right. So that's the development is if you could tease that out, that would be so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I have no idea, but it's, but it's, yeah. it's kind of a, it's a, it's a white whale. For sure. Mm-hmm. For sure. Um, well, Bill, thanks so much uh, for being on tonight. Really enjoyed this. Um, hope you and your family are staying safe while all this is going down. Uh, people want to follow you, they can find you on Twitter at ESPN underscore Bill C and both of your books, Football Study Hall, which I would recommend as a um, must read for getting ready for college football season uh, and the 50 best college football teams of all time, which Grant gave me as a Christmas present this year and I thoroughly enjoyed. Uh, It has has a TCU team. It has a TCU team in it and a very good, uh, with with clips on YouTube as well, which is super fun. Mm -hmm. Um, Because then we could say, hey, was TCU's 1930 offense more explosive than TCU's 2020 offense? (laughs) Yes, it was. Um, Great. So at ESPN uh, underscore Bill C on Twitter, his books are on Amazon. Go follow him. Uh, Bill, thanks for being here tonight. Thanks for having me.